0: We're going to read from the Bible now, Acts chapter 16, starting at verse 6. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia, and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day, we went on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gates to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Theatira. Named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. that he turned round and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realised that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial even though we are Roman citizens and threw us into prison. And now, do they want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. This is God's word.
1: But well, there's a lively story, isn't it? Not everything happens there every day. But um, let me pray, and we'll uh, work it, th- work our way through it together. See if we can uh, discern quite what God is trying to say to us this morning. Our great God and Father, in some ways, these, a story such as this, it feels a little distant from us. But we know it's your word. We know it's timeless. We know you've had it recorded for our good today. So, Father, please speak. And would you give us ears that can listen and understand and respond, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I don't know if you quite clocked it when that was being read, but... Um, We've read about a massive moment, really, you'd have to say, in world history, whether you're a Christian or not. Because here's the moment where, for the first time in history, the the message of Jesus Christ, the the gospel message, uh, enters into Europe. And you'd have to say that Christianity has had an enormous impact upon Europe and from Europe to different parts of the world. Just our, our, our history, our ethics, our culture. I mean, just sociologically, you'd have to say this is a big moment in history, uh, even if you're a bit bewildered by uh, some other things. We might, have, I don't know if Adam, have we got that map? We may just throw up the map. I may just leave it there. I'm not going to refer to it in great detail today. But um, you can see that they, they, this is Paul's second missionary journey. It's known as he starts off really pretty much at, at Antioch on the, uh, uh, the west there, travels through modern day Turkey, Trias goes to Philippi into Europe. I think this is a big moment. You get quite a big drum roll, as Luke tells it. I think that's really the point of verses 6 to 10, this bizarre, we tried, we went, we went here, we sort of wandered around, we were going to do more work in this region of Galatia, but eventually they get sent to Europe. It gets a quite a big drum roll or build up. And um, this account of Paul and his gang, it's Timothy, Silas, Luke, uh, this gang in Philippi, it's the longest account in the New Testament of Paul in any European city even though he says they're only there for a few days, just in terms of how much time Luke takes to record it. So this is clearly important to him. And yet the thing that's been intriguing or puzzling for me as I've looked at this 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 week is, okay, it's a big moment in history, and Luke spends more time on this than any other European city, and yet what does he spend his time on? Well, it's three individuals and a prison break. seems slightly odd, things to spend your time on. This is a fairly momentous moment in history. Let me just tell you about three individuals and a prison break. It's quirky. You've got a, an affluent woman, Lydia, a religious merchant, an oppressed slave, a secular soldier working as a prison guard. I mean, everyone likes a little narrative. Everyone likes a sort of story. But why does Luke focus upon these three and the incident in prison i think it must be he wants to tell us this when the gospel first entered europe when the message of christianity first entered europe here's what happened opposition came and all sorts of people became christians and so just expect that when the message of christianity is preached. All, all sorts of people become Christians, but there's opposition. You just expect that. And I think that's why it's here. If you are joining us today, we start a new section in the book of Acts. Uh, if you just turn back, a page, chapter 16, verse 5. This is sort of Luke's marker. He always talks about the church growing or the word of God growing. That sort of ends his chapters. The sort of numbers weren't there originally. So we're in a new section, chapter 16, verse 6 to 1920, uh, until now... Uh, the main story of the book of Acts is then this, this Christian message encountering or engaging with Judaism and, and how that's worked out. Uh, but now in this section, 16.6 to 19.20, it's all about how the gospel message encounters the Roman Gentile world. So it's a bit different here, because now here's a message. There's one true God. He's come in Jesus Christ. That encounters a pagan polytheism of many, 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 many gods in the Roman Empire, and they don't like it. So opposition becomes more organised now. You get the state involved, as you do here in uh, in Acts chapter sixteen. Last time, if you were here in uh, in chapter fifteen, the section finished with the council of Jerusalem, where everyone agreed. There was a bit of a debate, but everyone agreed that this message of Jesus Christ—it's for Jew, for Gentile, it's for everyone. It's a message of grace for all. That is on the question: How can I go to heaven? How can I be saved? All religious systems basically teach what you perform. You climb a moral ladder. You live a life good enough to climb up to God. Well, the message of Christianity is God has come down in Jesus Christ and says, you'll never climb up. I've come for you. It's all his work. It's all about what Jesus has done, not us. And therefore, this message of grace, of gift, it is for everyone equally. That was the conclusion very clearly reached by the whole church in chapter 15. And so here then in chapter 16, Luke really underlines that message by saying, here are three very different people becoming Christians, because this message is for everyone. Okay? So this, I think, is chapter 16. What happens when the gospel is preached or well, there's opposition, but all sorts of people from all sorts of backgrounds, become Christians. So we're going to work through it in that way. Uh, four things, but we'll work through them fairly quickly. So there's a, the three people in the incident. There's a religious merchant who listened to the message. There's an oppressed girl who's set free. The secular magistrates made unjust accusations. And thirdly, an indifferent jailer witnessed God's power. You're not going to remember all those things, but broadly four things. There's a religious merchant, an oppressed girl, There's secular magistrates, an indifferent jailer. We'll see how we get on. First, then you get this incident with Lydia, and a religious merchant listened to the message. Let's pick up at verse 13. So on the Sabbath, we, Paul, Silas, Luke, Timothy, we went outside the city gate in Philippi to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who'd gathered there. Well, they go to Philippi. Where's the synagogue? There's no synagogue. You need 10 Jewish men to have a synagogue. Okay, if there's no synagogue, what's the culture? You have a prayer meeting by the river. That's just what they did in those days. So they go and they find a small prayer meeting, not enough religious people to have a synagogue, small prayer meeting by the river. But the focus falls upon one woman. Three things were told about her. Verse 14, one of those listing was a woman from the city of Thyatira. Okay, so she's a foreigner. She's from Asia, not a European natural from Philippi. Her name is um, Lydia. We're told she's a dealer in purple cloth. So she's in the rag trade. Purple dye, very hard to produce, very expensive. So you're thinking, Lydia, she's got a shop on Bond Street with Stella McCartney and Victoria Beckham. She's loaded. That's why she's got a big house. She can have the whole church in her house. Okay? So she's a foreigner. She's very wealthy in the rag trade. And the third thing we're told is that she's religious. So verse 14, she was a worshipper of God. That's sort of a technical term for someone who, from a, a, a Gentile, non-Jewish background, who is intrigued in Judaism, associates with Jews. Okay? So she's a foreigner. She's loaded in the rag trade. And, um, but she's religious. She's interested in um, spiritual things. What are we told? Well, she listens. And verse uh, 14, she was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to, the, to respond to Paul's message. Now, what would she have learned from Paul that she didn't know? So she's interested spiritually. She'd have read her Old Testament. But what would she have learned from Paul? She, she, as a sort of Jewish believer, she'd have known that there's one God, Yahweh. She'd have believed that. But no assurance, no confidence that she'd be accepted by this God. And so Paul says, let me tell you about Jesus Christ. He's done everything you need. You just need to accept what he's done for you. That he's died in your place to pay for all you've done wrong. He's lived a perfect life and gives you that status. He's done everything for you. So you can be confident. You just trust in him. You go to heaven. It's not about your own moral performance. Well, we're told the Lord opened her heart and she becomes a believer. So here's a religious person, used to probably moralism, can I climb my way to heaven? Now given a message of grace, very liberating for her. I was struck reading... um, uh, this book we uh, encouraged uh, people to read last week, The Insanity of God, city title, but um, a good book, uh, Nick Ripkin talking about he was a uh, missionary to Somalia in the 90s during the Civil War, and um, half of the book is really about that, and then half about him attempting to find out from other persecuted Christians around the globe how they've survived. I mean, the church in Somalia, tiny, tiny, tiny. It's a very good book. At one point in the book... Um, uh, so he sets up an NGO uh, working to take aid into the country. They, the NGO grows and grows and grows. They employ uh, a number of local Somalis. Uh, they're all Muslims, but they, they employ them in this NGO. At one point in the book, tragically, the uh, the family, their 16-year-old child dies of illness, and uh, the one employee in the NGO who comes along to the funeral is the sort of the right-hand man, a guy called Omar. And after the funeral, he and the, uh, the dad, Nick, they're back with the NGO and the organization. And Omar is animated. He's exercised. And so he, he blurts out to the rest of his Muslim colleagues, I didn't understand the funeral. People were crying, but they are also singing. And everyone was confident and seemed to know that Tim the 16-year-old boy. Tim was in paradise. Why can't we Muslims know that our loved ones are in paradise when they die? The Christians know it. We don't. Well, of course. Because if your system is a religious one which says, am I going to be good enough to climb my way into heaven? You can never be certain you have. Whereas in the gospel of Jesus Christ, I give you heaven. Jesus says, I give you salvation. You just need to say, thank you. I'm sorry for rejecting you all these years. Then you can be confident. You can have assurance. Very, very different. Christians have certainty because it's not our moral lives that takes us to heaven. It's Jesus. So there's Lydia. Lydia then, she's a religious merchant who uh, listened to the message. That's the first Secondly then, let's look at this girl. An oppressed girl was set free. Pick it up in verse uh, 16. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. So here's a girl who's the complete opposite of Lydia. Lydia, affluent, moral, religious, religious respected here's a girl who spiritually and morally is not viewed highly what in particular is highlighted though is that she's enslaved there's a double enslavement here so she's got a spirit uh, it's literally a, in the greek literally she has a spirit of a python there's a cult at the time a sort of snake cult that you could see into the future allegedly so she's enslaved spiritually or oppressed but also socially because she's owned by these men who use her to make money. There's a double enslavement to her life. Now, in this story, as in the the earthquake, you, you do have to come to terms with the fact that the Bible is unashamedly supernatural, or is unashamed in talking about the supernatural. You can't just fit Christianity into a secular Western box and bolted on. You just can't. I'm sorry. It is unashamedly supernatural. Now, for most in the 21st century in the West, we have a little bit of a problem with that, although it ebbs and flows. Let me just It's a limited point, but let me highlight that. It ebbs and flows. So even in the, um, the Times newspaper on Thursday, there was an article about the state of religious belief in the UK. I didn't know this. It doesn't particularly excite me, these numbers, but let me just point it out. So um, the number of atheists in the UK is falling year on year, uh, apparently. Uh, belief in one God, that's constant. Uh, atheists declining. But the belief that there is some sort of spiritual power is increasing year on year, exponentially. So sort of mysticism, uh, occult stuff, all these things... Whoosh, Going up and up, year on year at the moment. Now look, I'm not excited or pleased by that as a fact. But it is just intriguing. At the moment, in the UK, a belief in the supernatural is on the rise. It had declined. It's now on the rise. I mean, there's a whole number of factors that feed into that. These things ebb and flow. But in Philippi, clearly, there was a great belief in the supernatural. And you could pay for supernatural guidance... And in one sense, why wouldn't you? If you could go and pay your fee and find out what's going to happen in the future, you know, I could see that's, in one sense, appealing for people. And so this girl no doubt earned a good deal of money. Problem is, she's engaging with Paul. Now, what do you make of Paul's behavior here? His sort of irritation. Verse 17, this slave girl then, she followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned round and said to the Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the Spirit left her. Well, what is Paul doing? In one sense, this is free marketing. No one ever turns that down. She's shouting out loudly. Um, the, the, these guys can tell you about the Most High and the way to be saved. Well, I don't know. Paul was annoyed. Uh, that's, that's probably an overtranslation. The, the word is literally troubled, which is a fairly neutral word. He was troubled. Could mean he was annoyed. Could just mean he was compassionate. He was disturbed by this girl and her spirit. Could, could be either of those. You Make your choice. It could be that he is irritated, that he doesn't want the the true message of Christianity to become blurred with this supernatural spiritism. could be that. But either way, what is clear is in verse 18, Jesus Christ has power and this other spirit is forced to leave. Now that is all we get told about the girl. I presume because Luke has included her between Lydia and the jailer. That uh, she joins the church. I presume that's why she's included as well. But I guess the question becomes, who, who do we think the gospel is for? Is the message of Christianity just for polite, middle-class merchants who are quite interested spiritually, like Lydia? Whereas here it's also for the oppressed, supernaturally, Socially, the oppressed. I've not met many fortune tellers with the spirit of Python in Mayfair. Although it's a quirky area and you never quite know uh, what goes on in Shepherd's Market. But um, there are many slave girls in Mayfair and Westminster. as a number here would know. There are a lot of trafficked women in the sex trade in this part of town. And the gospel is for them. I've said it numerous times. But I do think the work of Tamar, which a number here are involved in, is a very wonderful ministry. Seeking to support these girls who are sex workers emotionally, practically. Try to get them out. At the same time, just meeting socially, tea, cake, support. A normal human being, and of course to try and read the Bible with them for those who are interested. It's a very wonderful thing. It may not be as instantly dramatic as the spirit of Python leaving a girl, but pulling someone out of that trade and seeing them set on a new path and maybe becoming a Christian, that is that is as dramatically transforming for their life as this girl. So an oppressed girl was set free. Okay, So there's the first two. A religious merchant listened to the message. An oppressed girl was set free. Uh, two other things that Luke focuses on them. A Third, these secular leaders. The secular leaders, they made unjust accusations. Well, it starts off with the owners, verse 19. When the owners, uh, the owners of the slave girl, verse 19, when her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, well, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. Oh dear, we've lost our cash. Our cash cow has gone. That is disappointing to them. But what they don't say is, Oh, we've lost our income stream because our fortune teller has been despiritized, whatever, um, set free. Do you see what their complaint is when they bring them into the public arena, verse 20? So the owners, they brought uh, Paul and Silas before the magistrates and said... These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. Now, there's something pretty timeless about that at the moment. They're racist and they're nationalist. These people are Jews and us Romans and their values are not our values. Well, that doesn't sound... Too unfamiliar as a cry from some in the 21st century. This is quite politically relevant in the 21st century. So they don't get a proper trial. Verse 22, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. And what is mob rule at this point? So there's no proper trial, even though the Roman legal system was pretty formalized. So verse 22, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. And after they'd been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison. And the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. The slave masters, they care about money. But what stirs the crowd up then were, these are not our customs. These men are different from us. Very striking. The first Europeans to hear the message of Jesus Christ rejected it on the ground of they're not our values. They're not our customs. They're different to us. It's unjust. It's unfair. But that's why they objected. Look, if you're a Christian here, let me say three things uh, briefly on this. Uh, The first is Expect that. I think that's Luke's point. Certainly from here on in, all the way through to the end of the book of Acts, Luke spends an enormous amount of time highlighting the gospel is innocent. It doesn't cause mayhem. But it's constantly put on trial and said it's not Roman. It doesn't fit. We can't accept it. So this is one of Luke's big themes from now on in in the book of Acts. Opposition always comes, and it's quite often unfair. Expect it, he is saying. I don't think this is radically different because in the 21st century, in a culture in the UK, in the West, which is has drifted a long way from its Christian roots, I don't think it is uncommon to hear people say, those Christians, Christianity, it's hostile to British values. I don't suppose I'm the only one who just, for explaining what the Bible says on something, will be called fundamentalist, will be called narrow-minded, will be called bigot. And Luke would say, what do you expect? Don't be surprised. Secondly the thing, be shrewd, that's what Paul is here. Uh, if you skip on through, there, obviously there's the, the, uh, the prison break that isn't a prison break. Um, and we'll come to that in a moment. But you just jump to the end of the story, where the magistrates realize they've made a mistake. Verse 35, when it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can go. You can leave. Go in peace. Paul said to the officers, no. No, they beat us publicly. Without a trial, even though we're Roman citizens, uh uh-oh, you beat a Roman citizen, you are in serious trouble. And they threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quickly? No. No, the magistrates are going to come down here and publicly apologize and publicly say, "We, we mustn't mistreat these Christians like this. So verse 38, the officers reported this to the magistrates. When they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed they oh, we're going to give you real trouble for that. They deserve to be beaten themselves for beating a Roman citizen. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. And after Paul and Silas came out, they went to Lydia's house. So Paul and Silas, they're very shrewd. They are going to leave the town, but before they do, they're making sure that the church in Philippi is legally protected. It's just shrewd. But the third thing, and the main, most important thing perhaps to say on this, is um, these unfair accusations, they're not true. And if you're in any doubt about that, let me just try and illustrate it this way. In the 21st century, some will say, oh, Christianity, it's, it's out of tune with British values. I'm trying to discern what those British values are is a little ephemeral. People find it quite hard to pin them down, actually. But um, out of tune with British values. I was very struck recently, it was a while ago now actually, uh, the historian Tom Holland, who uh, I think is a good guy. We don't need it yet. Um, but the historian Tom Holland, the... Um, he is uh he's written plenty of books uh best selling books particularly the history of persia uh roman empire uh, well respected phd academic etc etc M- big selling does channel 4 documentaries so he must be good um, or at least good looking um, so uh but he he, he was about an interesting article in the new statesman he would describe himself as agnostic uh new statesman would describe itself as Probably not pro-Christian, I think you'd say. But he wrote an interesting article in it. He talks about his own upbringing and uh, growing up, rejecting Christianity. He said, because I accepted the Enlightenment narrative that it was a tragedy for global history when the Roman Empire turned Christian. All these wonderful values of democracy, etc. Christianity just ruined everything. And uh, thank goodness that in modernity and the Enlightenment... Our values were founded on ignoring Christianity and, and dusting down the classical values of ancient Greece, Persia, and Rome. He said, and that's how I grew up. That was my upbringing. And I went through university, and I got my PhD, and I, you know, I started writing stuff. And, and that's just all the stuff I assumed. And then my research took me to a different place. So he says, I realized that the values of the Spartans, Persians... Well, they're not, are they? But they are an opponent, but that sort of era, they hate one another. Uh, the values of the Spartans, who'd, they'd practiced a peculiarly, a peculiarly murderous form of eugenics. They were not my values. Caesar had killed a million ghouls and sent another million to prison. They were not my values. It was not just the extremes of callousness in ancient civilizations that I came to find shocking. But the lack of a sense that the poor or weak might have any intrinsic value. I realized, I look back, and I'm like, in all my research, if you were poor, you were stuffed back in the ancient civilizations. And so I read the Bible, he says. Let's have it, Adam, then. I read, I read um, Paul writing, We preach Christ crucified. Unto the Greeks' foolishness. Let me read what he says.
0: This is the reason why,
1: by and large, most of us who live in post-Christian societies take for granted that it's nobler to suffer than inflict suffering. It's why we generally assume that every human life is of equal value. In my morals and my ethics, I have learned to accept that I am not Greek or Roman at all, but thoroughly and proudly Christian. Oh, no. He's not saying he is a Christian. He would not describe himself as such. He'd say he's an atheist, agnostic sort of spectrum. But my morals, he says, they're all Christian. The things we value in Britain, they're Christian. I have to be honest and say that, he says. Not popular to admit, but these, the values which now are, we say, are, are in Congress or, or don't fit with Christianity, they flow from Christianity. It's very unfair The accusation. Christians are out of tune with modern British values. But it'll happen. That's Paul's point here. A religious merchant then listened to the message and a press girl was set free. A secular magistrate made unjust accusations. Last little thing briefly then. An indifferent jailer witnessed God's power. Let's look at this one lastly briefly. Verse 23. Let's go back to there. We're back in prison. After they'd been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, Paul and Silas, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them into the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. Charming. Uh, you can imagine Paul and Silas saying, to be honest, we've just been beaten pretty hard by rods and, you know, we're knackered, and you're going to put us in stocks. Cheers, fella. Uh, we ain't going anywhere. We can barely crawl. Um, so it's a bit mean-spirited of him. But in the culture of the time, if you're a prison guard and your prisoners escape, You get killed. Uh, again, so there is a strong incentive to make sure your prisoners don't escape. So he locks them up and puts them in stocks. It's a bit mean-spirited, but there we go. And then you get this earthquake. And whatever you make of the earthquake, Luke is not that fussed by it. Luke's focus is upon the response of the jailer. And the jailer, well, he seems to see God's power in two ways. One is obvious, the, the, the earthquake and the... Verse 26, there was a violent earthquake. The foundations of the prison were shaken all at once. The prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. So yeah, look, the jailer saw that sort of demonstration. But I think you'd have to say, secondly, he sees God's power in the lives of Paul and Silas. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening to them. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm lying awake at midnight, that's not when I'm at my most joyful. That's when I'm grumpy that I'm still awake. The the stresses of life are running through my head, and my thoughts become their most morose in the middle of the night if I can't get to sleep. But here they are, and they're singing. They're singing. There's a great story. uh, Another story in this one when. um, uh, uh, the writer Nick, he's, he's on his travels, he goes to Russia, he meets one man called Dmitry. Dmitry spent 17 years in prison in Soviet Russia, 17 years for preaching the gospel. One of the things he does every morning to keep himself going, every morning as soon as it's dawn, he stands up and he faces east, I don't know why he does that, but um, he sings every morning without fail for 17 years. He stands up and just sings and and sings the same repertoire of songs that he's memorised of Christian songs. Now, he, there aren't many other Christians in the prison. You've got 1,500 other hardened criminals and uh, by all accounts, uh, he stands up and sings, and all the other criminals jeer and boo him. Probably they want to roll over and go to sleep as well, and he's woken them up. That, that may not have been so wise anyway. But uh, they jeer, and they boo him, and they laugh at him. And of course, because he's singing Christian songs, the prison guards come in and beat him every day, every morning, 17 years. Uh, towards the end of his time there, he's... Um, he, once again, they have, a, they have an attempt to make him confess that there is no such God as Jesus Christ. They tell him his family has been killed. He should give up. Uh, uh, but he refuses to uh, to sign this uh, recantation, as it were. Uh, and so they say, right, that's it. Now you're going to die. And so he's hauled out of his cell into the main yard, and they're about to execute him. And extraordinarily, the other hardened criminals who have witnessed this man's extraordinary Faith, they know he's only in prison because he believes in Jesus. 1,500 criminals start singing one of the songs that he's sung every day and they start singing it. They don't believe it, but they just say there's something about this man and his life is spared that day. Eventually he emerges from prison. This jailer, yes, he sees an earthquake, but what extraordinarily he sees the power of God at work in these guys' lives. They sing. And then verse 28, he's about to kill himself, the jailer, verse 27. Well, he may get on with it. It, 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 The the prison's broken open. My prisoners have escaped. I'll be killed anyway, so I may as well kill myself. I'll, I'll do it more quickly, get it over with. But Paul shouts out, verse 28, no, don't harm yourself. We're all here. I mean, we could have just walked out. I mean, to be honest, fella, you're pretty mean with us putting it in stocks. I mean. We've just been beaten and you put us in stocks. You haven't been the kindest of jailers. But look, we've not run away. We're here. Getting out is not the most important thing to us, he says. And at that moment, the jailer is just bewildered. Well, he calls for the lights, and verse 30 asks them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Physically, I don't know. Spiritually, I don't know quite what he's asking. But they reply, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. You and your household. And they explain what that means. Verse 32 and verse 33. He does. And verse 34. He associates with them, takes them into his house. And verse 34. His life is utterly transformed. He's filled with joy because he'd come to believe in God. He and his whole household. So here's a jailer he sees the power of God in an earthquake in the lives of these Christians that says, Okay, uh, there's something different about you. What must I do to know this joy that you have? An indifferent jailer witnessed God's power. So I guess you get to the end of verse of excuse me, of Acts 16. And the question is, what do you expect to happen when this message, this gospel of Jesus' grace is preached. When the gospel is preached to a culture which is a long way away from Christianity, expect persecution, expect opposition. In the UK, we're not a long way away, so the opposition is mild. It's, it's, It's mild. It's very different in other parts of the world. But expect it. But the bulk of the chapter, I guess, falls on this. Expect all sorts of people to become Christians. We're told verse 40 that Paul, he says farewell, and there are all sorts of brothers and sisters here. There's clearly more people have become Christians. Why these three? Why these three? I can't know for certain. Luke would know the traditional Jewish liturgy, that still today, if you're an Orthodox Jew, you'd wake up, and you'd say as part of your liturgy, if you're a man, thank you, God, that you did not make me. Thank you. That, thank you, God, for not making me a woman, a slave or a Gentile. Still traditional liturgy. And here in this chapter, you see converted a woman, a slave and a Gentile. And I think Luke is saying, yeah, 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 this gospel is for everyone. All sorts of people. Are you religious? You need this, like Lydia did. Are you oppressed? You need this, like the slave girl did. Are you indifferent? You need this, like the jailer did. This gift of grace in Jesus Christ, it is for everyone. And so Christians, who do you expect to joyfully trust in Jesus Christ? It really can be anyone. For this is for everyone. Let me lead us in prayer. Hey, great God and Father, thank you that you are not one with prejudices. You're not one who discriminates between races or cultures or social classes. That the saving gift of salvation, the gift of Jesus Christ is for all types of people all classes, all races, all cultures, anyone can become a Christian because Jesus died for all sorts of people. Would we recognize our need? Would we recognize that you can do extraordinary things and all sorts can come to know and trust in him? Father, we thank you and we praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.